John chapter 18. Tom's continuing in his series. Keep in mind that John is writing this long after the events have occurred. Jesus has been dead for probably somewhere 45, 50 years. Peter has been martyred in Rome 20 to 25 years ago. John is writing that we may be assured that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior. This is now Thursday night. The Romans have sent a contingent of a couple hundred soldiers as well as the temple police. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's dark. It's cold. Beginning verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest for that year. Caiaphas, by the way, was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. It was cold, and the servants and the officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus replied, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. And when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. Jesus said, if I said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, as Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Let's pray. Father, we've just read a dark, dark period in human history. We've seen the willfulness and the evil mounting, and we've seen the frailty of man. Father, we ask your presence with us. We ask that you would empower Tom with your words for us. We pray that our hearts would be um, emboldened that we would be sensitive to your spirit to lead us in the way that you would have us to go, that we would glorify you with our whole heart. And we pray in our Savior's name. Amen. 
Good morning. Our passage this morning actually begins with the last thing that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane that night, and that was the actual arrest and binding of Jesus. Verses 12 and 13 say, once again, So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father of, father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest in that year. The word that's translated band or cohort here in verse 12 was the standard designation for a battalion of Roman soldiers consisting of roughly 600 men. And the word translated commander is the Greek word kiliarchos. Kilius means thousand. Archos means leader or head. Kiliarchos is the head of a thousand. The same word shows up 17 times in the book of Acts and it always means the same thing. It refers to a Roman military tribune who commanded a battalion of somewhere in the range of 600 men, more or less. Based on the number of men under this commander's control, the U.S. Army equivalent to this Kiliarch would be a lieutenant colonel. Pontius Pilate simply would not have wasted such a man's time to command a tiny subset of a battalion on a minor police action. At most, that would have involved a battalion subcommander, which in Greek is a hecaton archos, or a leader of a hundred, Latin equivalent centurion, like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Now, this detachment in John 18 consisted of hundreds of well-armed, well-trained Roman soldiers. The arrest of Jesus was treated by both the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities as a very big event. And that was certainly understandable considering that the city of Jerusalem was was crammed to overflowing for the Passover. People came from all over the Roman Empire, Jews came and proselytes from all over the Roman Empire to participate in the Passover celebration. And on Palm Sunday, just four days before this, a large contingent of that mass of people in Jerusalem had thrown a welcome parade for Jesus as he came into the city. Both the Jewish and Roman authorities had good reason to believe that a riot might ensue if their efforts to arrest Jesus turned into a protracted manhunt through the, through the environs of Jerusalem with Jesus eluding their grasp the same way he had every single time the Jewish authorities had tried to lay hands on him before this. So they came with what they considered to be irresistible force. And all they needed was a couple of guys. Now why is that all worth pointing out? Well, because it draws our attention once again to the stark contrast between what men intended that night and what God intended The surrender of Jesus took everyone by surprise. Everyone, of course, except God. 
Nobody, including the 11 men who had been with Jesus every day for three years, could understand how it could possibly be if Jesus was who he said he was, if he was the God-anointed, prophet-promised king of kings, that he could simply hand himself over to a bunch of mere mortals. It's against that backdrop that we're going to look at the events that occurred after Jesus' arrest that same Passover night, the events recorded in verses 13 to 27 of John 18. Through John's record, God sets before us three simultaneous trials that occurred on this one momentous Passover night. First is the trial of Annas, or rather of the whole religious establishment in Jerusalem that Annas represented. The temple soldiers led this group that was a combination of of Roman soldiers, Jewish temple officers, and townspeople from the Garden of Gethsemane where they had taken Jesus into custody to the court of the priest, the court of the high priest where Annas was waiting for their arrival. And John explains that Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was high priest in that year. Now, you may be wondering why these folks would take Jesus first to a guy who wasn't even the top authority among the Jewish hierarchy in that year. The little historical background explains why that happened. See, these men all understood that Annas carried greater authority than any acting high priest had for at least 15 years. Annas had officially held the role of high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. Nine years was a long time for one man to be in the role of high priest. The Romans regularly replaced whoever was in that role with someone else in the Levitical line, the priestly line, so that no one man in that role would become too influential and, of course, so that the Jews would know who who was actually calling the shots. In A.D. 15, Pilate's predecessor as Roman governor of Judea, a man named Valerius Gratus, deposed Annas, no doubt because Annas had been in there so long that he he had achieved greater influence over the Jews than the Romans deemed acceptable. But that did not end Annas' functional reign over the entire Jewish religious establishment. Josephus records the fact that in the time after Annas was deposed, five of his sons served in the role of high priest, followed by his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And that's where we are at this point. Annas was the patriarch of a high priestly dynasty that dominated that office for more than 25 years. He was a powerful man, a powerful man as, as uh, men measure power. In fact, he was powerful enough that there were certainly Roman officials who made it, made sure that they didn't get on his bad side. That's why those who had been sent to arrest Jesus brought him to Annas first. Now, John doesn't give us any details here of the slightly more official trial of Jesus before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin council that happened just a little later that same night. You'll find those details in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14. 
Instead, John draws our attention to just one thing about Caiaphas. And that is Caiaphas' declaration back in John chapter 11, right after the Jewish leadership found out that Jesus had raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, of course, was the brother of Mary and Martha. That family had a very close personal relationship with Jesus. I'm going to read from John 11, starting at verse 45, and listen to this passage. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he, Jesus, had done, meaning saw that he had raised Lazarus, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and they will take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. And then John is quick to add, now Caiaphas did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest in that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Now in John 18, the apostle points us back to chapter 11, reminding us that that was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. See, John's making sure that we get the profound irony of what was going on here. Annas, Caiaphas, and the entire Jewish religious hierarchy in Jerusalem had long been passionately committed to seeing Jesus dead. But what they didn't even remotely understand was so had Jesus. Jesus came from heaven to earth to be executed. For the glory of God and for the salvation of men, for that reason, Jesus came to this very hour. Annas And Caiaphas and all the other power brokers among the temple elite cared only to protect their precious status quo. And Jesus was putting that status quo in serious peril. If this man, whose disciples called him the king of the Jews, kept doing things like raising people from the dead, the Jewish people... And plenty of Gentiles would start following him instead of them, instead of the Jewish authorities. And their carefully guarded political balancing act with the Romans, whom they all hated with a passion, would be undone. Caesar would never let the Jews have their own king. And the continued existence of the place of honor and power and wealth that these priests had long enjoyed 
along with the continued existence of their nation within a nation over which they all proudly reigned, depended on the death of Jesus. Even if that meant commiserating with the Romans whom they despised, they were committed to bringing about the death of Jesus. But so was Jesus. Jesus had to die. He came to die. Not to save what these men wanted to save, but to save the souls of every man, woman, and child that the Father had given to Him from eternity past. To redeem all who would make up the eternal household of the one true God. To gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. People from every tribe and language and nation, just as the prophets had foretold. The verdict and the sentence against Jesus that night had been predetermined by the Jewish authorities. There was nothing just or objective or honorable about the supposed legal process that unfolded on this Thursday night. The end of it was a foregone conclusion. But the verdict and the sentence against Jesus had also been predetermined by God. And his plan for the outcome was as far removed from the Jewish plan as light is from darkness. As Annas sat in judgment over Jesus that night, Annas himself was on trial in an infinitely higher court. The man that Annas presumed to judge was the judge of all men. And friends, if Jesus had not pulled his punch that night, just as he did in the garden, at a level that can only be called miraculous, Annas and everyone associated with him would have breathed their last breath that night. We heard in the worship this morning from Matthew, Jesus said, I could command a dozen legions of angels. One legion is 10 battalions, 6,000 soldiers. And a dozen legions is 72,000 soldiers. And we're talking about angelic soldiers. Consider just a couple of the things that Annas did that night that completely violated the justness of the God he was supposed to be representing. Annas immediately put Jesus on the witness stand without bothering either to hear or to solicit any witnesses on Jesus' behalf. That was wrong on every level. Jewish law, the law of the Sanhedrin, precluded forcing a witness to testify against himself. And Jewish law demanded that witnesses in support of the defendant be heard before witnesses against the defendant. No such witnesses were even solicited. Jesus' response in verses 20 to 21 held Annas accountable to the very law that every high priest was charged with upholding. He said to Annas, why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, these know what I said. And just before that, he reminded Annas that His teaching had not been done in 
hidden places. He had preached in public. Yes, he had gone aside and spoken with the disciples many times, but but the, the core of everything that he taught was right out on the table for the masses to hear. There had been no subterfuge or secrecy in Jesus' ministry. There were thousands of people who could have been brought before Annas to bear witness to Jesus' teaching. But Annas didn't want the truth. He was so fixed on defending the lie on which his whole life was founded that he was prepared to kill the truth. Annas also commanded, or at very least allowed, one of his temple officers to violently strike Jesus for pointing out Annas' violation of the law he was charged to uphold. This too was forbidden by the law of the Sanhedrin. The trial of Jesus before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin later that night added several more violations of Jewish law to this refuse heap of injustices. But all of those were just symptoms of an infinitely greater violation of an infinitely greater law. Annas, Caiaphas, and the entire Jewish religious establishment of that day had rigorously set aside the testimony concerning the Son of God that had been declared by God through their own prophets for countless generations. They steadfastly rejected the Son's witness to Himself through the perfection of His character and the perfect faithfulness of every single word and every single deed that came from Jesus during His earthly life as He did and said only the things that His Father had given Him to do and to say. He was the perfect agent. Of God. The verdict in God's trial of Annas that night is the same as his verdict against all people in every age who dispense with Jesus as an unnecessary and unwelcome complication to their lives. Because they're convinced that the life that they deserve and long for can only come to them through their own efforts. God's verdict against all such people is condemned. We all start out under that verdict, and that's exactly why every man, woman, and child who ever lived on this earth desperately needed for Jesus to die. He came to bear both the guilt and the penalty of God's just verdict against every one of us. And if he had not come to die, we would all stand under the verdict condemned forever. By this late hour on Passover night, every Jew had already observed the Passover meal. The next critical observance on the calendar was the Sabbath associated with this particular Passover festival. See, this festival that brought tens of thousands of people, perhaps hundreds of thousands, from all over the Roman Empire to the city of Jerusalem, began with the Passover meal on the 14th day of the month, and it continued with the observance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven more days until the 21st of the month. If you have a seven-day observance, you're going to have a Sabbath in there somewhere. Maybe two. The Sabbath each week 
began at twilight on Friday and continued until twilight on Saturday. It was now late Thursday night. And these men wanted Jesus dead. And they were in no mood to wait. They had been passionately pursuing that goal, Jesus' death, for most of the last three years. Now they finally had Jesus in hand after countless attempts. And they wanted this execution to happen not after the Sabbath that would begin the next evening, but before it. And that meant that things had to proceed very, very quickly. I have no doubt that Caiaphas and the rest of the priestly high council called the Sanhedrin had been assembled in advance and they were ready to roll by the time Jesus was ushered into the court. Little did they know in their haste that both the timetable and the outcome had already been predetermined by God a very long time ago. The second trial in this passage is the trial of Peter. Some preachers and authors see John's record of Peter's failure here essentially as a warning to believers. They declare that this account is included in John's gospel so that we'll know what we must not do. So we'll be vigilant to remain faithful to Jesus even when our livelihood, our reputation, our freedom... And even our lives is its, are at stake. And, and that is certainly what God requires of us as ambassadors of Christ. But, but I strongly believe, based on everything that has led up to this, especially in Jesus' interactions with Peter, that the reason John records this final and greatest failure of Peter in such close proximity to Jesus' death isn't fundamentally to show us what we must resolve not to do and not to be like. It's to show us what we are like. Men like Annas, desperately needed for Jesus to go to the cross for reasons that Annas didn't understand at all. Men like Peter, also desperately needed for Jesus to go to the cross. Go back with me for a minute to chapter 13 and listen as I read One exchange between Peter and Jesus. Jesus had just told his 11 true disciples that where he was about to go, they could not go. And then he said to them in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But Peter was still mentally stuck on what Jesus said two verses before that about not being able to go with him where he was going. And Peter completely missed that command. What Jesus said about how his true followers must follow him by loving each other even as he had loved them. Peter's self-made concept of following Jesus made so much of Peter that it left his fellow disciples in the dust. He said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And Peter said to him, oh, Lord, why can, I, why can I not follow you right now? Forget all those other guys. 
I will lay down my life for you. And of course, Jesus said, oh, really? Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. I'm not going to look at the details of Peter's denial in this passage. But if you put them together with the details of his denial in another passage, you have to wonder if this happened more than once that night. Peter denied Jesus over and over. He denied Jesus cursing. Here on the eve of Jesus' death, Peter fulfilled the prophecy just as Jesus said he would. He utterly, miserably failed to do what he had so resolutely promised Jesus he would do. And beloved, I believe that is exactly what had to happen to Peter to make him ready for the marvelous work to which Jesus had appointed him. As Peter had come to know Jesus better and better during the three years of shadowing him every single day, Peter's failures had not become smaller and smaller. This was the biggest of all of them. And Jesus had been graciously bringing Peter to this point all along. Jesus didn't make Peter deny him. All it takes for us to act out the very worst that's in our hearts is for God to step back for a minute or two and let our, ha- let our hearts have their way with us. And sometimes that's exactly what needs to happen for God to show us what we're made of and where our usefulness to Him actually comes from. See, the good news, the good news is not Follow Jesus really well and it will be well between you and God. And you'll accomplish amazing things. That's not the good news. That's what God requires, make no mistake. But that's not the good news because we can't do it. And God must bring us to that painful, liberating truth And He will. Not just once, but as many times as it takes. The good news is, it is not well between you and God, not even remotely, but Jesus saves. And that salvation makes Him your only righteousness, your only worthiness, your only usefulness. Your only strength. In 1 Corinthians 1 verses 30 and 31, Paul makes an amazing statement. He says, Jesus became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He became to us wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So how much of, how much of the Christian life lived out through these vessels comes from us? None of it. We have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us and the life which we now live in the flesh. We live how? 
by trusting in the Son of God who loved us and delivered Himself up for us. See, God can't get any clearer than this. And yet we lapse right back into into Peter's mode. And so God teaches us all over again. And that's a good thing. That's a, a marvelous thing. It is our greatest humiliations before God that bring us to our greatest usefulness to God. Jesus commands you to follow him, but your resolve to follow him, your promise to follow him, even to die for him, has less substance than the breath that it takes for you to utter that promise. It will not be your resolve to die for Jesus that makes you powerfully useful to him. It will be your trust in the one who resolved in eternity past to die for you. To redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's Titus 2.14. And the cool thing about, about Jesus resolving to do something is that he always does what he resolves. We have a God who cannot lie. Annas is the poster child in this passage for men who reject the witness of the Father to the Son. Peter is the poster child in this passage for those who receive the witness of the Father to the Son, who believe that Jesus is exactly who He said He is. But just like you and me, who fail miserably in their efforts to follow Jesus because they are relying on the power of their embrace of Christ instead of the power of His embrace of them. Men whose trust when it comes to practical holiness is in the strength of their commitment to Jesus rather than in the perfection of their Savior and His salvation. When I read this next quote to you back when we were in chapter 13, I told you I was probably going to read it to you again when we got to this point. You can change the word probably to definitely. This is from Bo Geert's exceptional book, The Hammer of God. I'd love to see every one of you read it, but that's not a, an assignment. It's just a suggestion. Once again, I'll preface this quote, beautiful quote, by explaining that when Brother Geertz refers to, who by the way was a Swedish Lutheran in the early 1900s. When he refers to the way of obedience, he's talking about the way of obedience-based righteousness, which doesn't actually exist, and he knows it. And when he refers to the way of grace, he's talking about the way of grace-based righteousness, which is the only way of true righteousness. Listen to what he says. The way of obedience leads to the foot of the cross, There one stands, a poor wretch like Peter, on that first Good Friday, full of shame and despair, looking upon his crucified Savior whom he had been unable to follow. There it becomes apparent that the Lord's best disciples are unworthy of him. They are all betrayers and deniers, sharing in the guilt of his death. But there, at the cross, it also becomes clear that the Lord Himself makes atonement for their sins. Where the way of obedience, obedience-based righteousness, ends at Golgotha with judgment on us, everyone who believes may nevertheless stand on this rock 
of atonement. There, the way of grace begins. The new and holy way through the veil, the way that is sanctified by His blood. End of quote. The verdict in Jesus' trial of Peter that night was not a verdict of condemned. The Father had already given Peter to His Son. Peter believed and declared that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was covered by the poured out blood of Jesus even before that blood was poured out. Just as is true of all who have ever been justified by faith in the promise of God that Jesus alone fulfills. The verdict in Jesus' trial of Peter that night was not condemned. Beloved, the verdict was dependent. Utterly, entirely, 100% dependent. You cannot be a joyful disciple of Jesus Christ until you receive that verdict toward yourself. And it's not once and done. God has to keep teaching it to us over and over. But after a while, Lord willing, we begin to welcome it. We begin to welcome the unspeakable relief from the, the weight, the burden of our self-reliance the relief that we experience every time God faithfully teaches us yet again that we are not adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's 2 Corinthians 3, 5 and 6. See, it's His adequacy, not ours. Every day. All the time. It's His. And that makes us dependent. And you know what dependent people do? They depend. They trust. Because they got nothing else they can offer. They trust. How do we live this life in the flesh? By trusting the one who loved us and delivered himself up for us. He's the one who does it all. Lord willing, by the 20th or maybe the 100th time that he teaches us that lesson, we'll remember the last time we experienced that blessed release from the crippling weight of our self-dependence and we will find ourselves delighted that God loves us enough to keep humbling us so that our following of Jesus becomes irresistible instead of forced. God's verdict toward Peter that Passover night is the same as His verdict toward all of us who are His redeemed children all the time. And that verdict is utterly dependent. May you and I who belong to Jesus come to love that verdict and cling to it. The third trial in this passage is the trial of the one whom this gospel is all about. So so what is there to say about this first trial in a series of hurried trials to which Jesus was subjected that night and the next morning in the greatest miscarriage of justice that the world has ever seen men perpetrate. What is there to say about that trial? Well, it's the same thing that must be said 
every single time men created in the image of God raise an accusation against their Creator. See, the verdict is already in. The case is already determined. The one that men accuse is the very one before whose throne they will stand in judgment to be judged. Their accusations against Him serve only to fortify the already established case for their well-deserved condemnation. Professing to be wise, men became fools. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is God, blessed forever. And men who persist in that God-rejecting foolishness and that Christ-rejecting foolishness will be condemned forever. The verdict is already in. Annas, Caiaphas, and all who stood with them to oppose Jesus judged the words of Jesus to be blasphemy. The worst kind of falsehood. But Jesus is the truth. He alone among men is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. Everything that He said and everything that He did perfectly displayed His Father's character and perfectly accomplished His Father's will. He is the perfect agent of God. Jesus is the only man who will ever be reckoned as innocent in the court of God's law on His own merit. And that's why He alone had to save us. Jesus humbled Himself that night and the next morning to stand trial on the earth that He created in courts presided over by men that He created. He allowed Himself to be unjustly condemned by men like us in order that He might bear the verdict of condemnation from God against men like us. The greatest irony in the universe is the greatest gift in the universe. The one who alone deserved a verdict of innocent, righteous, holy, blameless, spotless, perfect, received that very next day a verdict from His own Father of guilty, sinful, unclean, condemned. The verdict that purchased eternal life for us was the Father's verdict of condemnation against His own perfectly holy, perfectly righteous Son as He took our place and bore our guilt and our shame to put it away forever. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The hastily assembled and unjustly conducted trials of Jesus that night and the next morning before Annas before Caiaphas and before the Sanhedrin and before Pilate served only to further prove the justness of God's verdict of condemned against both Jews and Gentiles. All of us in every age. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53.6, All of us, like sheep, 
have gone astray. Every single one of us has turned to his own way, but Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. The verdict that rendered the Son of God guilty with the debt of our sin is the verdict that sets all who trust in him free from the penalty, the power, and one glorious day, the presence of sin to stand spotless and blameless in the presence of our great God and Savior forever. And so it is His name that we exalt, not ours. It is His and His alone. Dear Father, we embrace Your verdict of condemnation against us as we cling to Your promise that that verdict has fallen on the only one who did not deserve it. And we embrace Your verdict toward us as Your redeemed children that declares us utterly, completely dependent on Jesus to be our righteousness every day of our lives. Father, as we received Him by faith, teach us to walk in Him by faith. Thank You for freeing us from the burden of sin and of self to find our life only in our great God and glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in His precious name that we pray. Amen.